Our reading this morning is from Romans 12, verses 9 through 13. Let love be genuine. Abhor what is evil. Hold fast to what is good. Love one another with brotherly affection. Outdo one another in showing honor. Do not be slothful in zeal, but fervent in spirit. Serve the Lord. Rejoice in hope. Be patient in tribulation. Be constant in prayer. Contribute to the needs of the saints and seek to show hospitality. Let's say amen together, church. Amen. Thank you, Tom. Thank you, worship team. Go ahead and take a seat, everybody, and let me welcome those of you who are online right now. Let me uh, wish you a hearty Heidi Ho from Harvest Decatur. <laughs> that was well done, Don Miller. I have to use that again. We are studying the book of Romans, so let's take our Bibles and turn to the passage that Tom just read, Romans chapter 12. Just a few verses here, but these, these verses pack a wallop. There's a lot in here, and... You know, for the next two weeks, as we look at the end, the backside of Romans 12, uh, we're looking at really this fascinating but also challenging section of Scripture. And this is one of those sections of Scripture, Romans 12, uh, starting in verse 9, I would say all the way to verse 21. As you read these verses, these these verses just kind of make you feel bad. Like, man, I, I, I'm not doing this like I should. And we, you just kind of feel bad, but at least we all feel bad together. We're all being convicted together. We're all being challenged. I, now, let me just explain why I say feel bad, because you know, even as Tom is reading that, the, the ideals in this passage are just so lofty. They're just so high. The bar is set so high for us as Christians And yet, this is what the Lord wants us to pursue. This is our goal. This is our target. This is not an indictment on where you are right now as a Christian. So I don't want you to feel that guilt, like I'm not measuring up. I want you to say, this is what we're going for. This is our goal. I know how I feel, even as I read this passage. As I read verses 9 through 13, I think to myself, well, I need to work on X, Y, and Z, you know? But I also feel, and I hope you feel this way too, I've come pretty far with X, Y, and Z. I'm better than I used to be. I'm less selfish than I used to be. You know, I used to be so impatient in tribulation. Now I'm more patient in tribulation. I used to be so inhospitable. Now I'm learning the skill of hospitality. Sonia has taught me that over 20 years. I'm more hospitable than I used to be. And I'll I'll say this too as we get started this morning. If this passage feels challenging to you this morning, if it feels difficult or overwhelming, good! I, I know that doesn't sound very pastoral, but good! Who wants easy goals in our lives? This is hard stuff, and this is something we can pursue together. Who, who wants goals that are easy to achieve? 
As I read chapter 12, starting in verses 1 and 2, but I would say all the way through to our passage today and to the passage for next week, I want to live a life like this. I want God to do this work in my life. I want to take these commands in this passage and say, Lord, make this happen by the power of your Holy Spirit inside of me. And I don't care. What's great about this, too, is You know, it doesn't matter if you've been walking with the Lord for six days or six weeks or six years. There are things that you can do to grow in this. And so let me encourage you to do this. Let's get after this together, church. Are you ready? Everybody ready this morning? Go ahead and take your notes and write these down. I'm going to give you four overarching principles from Romans 12, 9 through 10, 9 through 13. Four values for the normal Christian life. Here's the first one. Harvesticator, let love be the driving motivator in your life. Let love be the driving motivator in your life. Let me say it this way. Let agape be the driving motivator in your life. Y'all familiar with this word, agape? This word for love that's so important in the New Testament Let agape be the driving motivator in your life. Now, for some of you, even as you read that on that screen or write it down in your bulletin, that can really sound like like an empty platitude. You know, that's just a platitude. And it can be an empty platitude if you don't understand what agape love really is. I spent a lot of time over the last few years thinking this through and trying to teach what agape love really is. And so we've looked at 1 Corinthians 13, we've looked at 1 John, we've looked at different passages that emphasize this Greek word agape. And what we've learned over the years, here's what agape is not. Agape is not sappy sentimentality. Agape is not fleeting feelings. Agape instead, as the Bible defines it, as we see it described, is it's real sacrificial and volitional demonstrations of commitment one to another. That's love. That's agape love. Real love. And speaking of real, Paul starts out this passage by saying, look at verse 9, let love be genuine. Literally, let your love be unhypocritical. The Greek word here for genuine is anapokritos. 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 It, it's, you know, it's the opposite of, of hypocrites. The, the play actor. Be unhypocritical in the way that you love one another. Don't fake it. Don't counterfeit it. Don't be a phony. Instead, let love be a deep, abiding commitment that drives your actions in this world. That's... That's how you let your love be genuine. The famous radio preacher, J. Vernon McGee, he would often say in his sermons, you know, I'm tired of sloppy agape. So uh, let me tell you this morning, Harvey, don't let your agape be sloppy. Don't let it be fake. Don't let it be phony. Don't let it be unreal. Don't let it be disingenuous. Just lip service, you know, oh, I love you, but man, I really hate that person on the inside. Tim Keller says it this way. You can read this on the screen. He says, we are not to be phony in our dealings with people. 
We are not to be polite, helpful, and apparently warm on the outside while despising them on the inside. This is important because in our culture of niceness, niceness, that can develop within the church of veneer of pleasantness covering over a spirit of backbiting gossip and prejudice. Can that happen in the church? Can that happen in the church? Yes, it can. And we need to be on the guard against it. Where there's an absence of tough love, says Keller, in which people would love each other enough to confront problems and sins in themselves and their friends. That's real love. That's genuine love. That kind of willingness to confront those problems and to help protect us against sloppy agape. Paul, Paul follows up. Let love be genuine with these statements in verse nine. Abhor what is evil, hold fast to what is good. Abhor what is evil, hold fast. That word hold fast means to be stuck or be glued, be glued to that which is good. Paul says that an outworking of genuine love is that we are glued to that which is good. It's the same Greek word used here that Matthew use, uses to describe uh, marriage. When Jesus is talking about marriage, he says, therefore a man shall leave his father and mother and hold fast to his wife. Cleave to his wife. Be glued to his wife. It's the same word here. Hold fast to what is good. And the two shall become one, as Jesus describes it, obviously referencing the book of Genesis and this, this marriage covenant the two are no longer one, but two, but one flesh. And what Paul's saying here is just like that metaphysical merging of the souls, man and woman coming together in marriage, Paul says, you need to be wedded to good. Your love for one another needs to be wedded to good, not evil. Abhor what is evil, hold fast to what is good. And I think this is really instructive for us in this day because there are a lot of evil things that are condoned in our world in the name of love. And, and oftentimes I think people get the idea, well, you know, if you love so you just, you know, goodness is just out the window. So is reason. I'm in love. None of that matters. You know, we, that's, that's sloppy agape. This idea that every sinful thing we do is condoned under the heading of love. We even see it in the songs that people sing. You know, people sing songs like, a love this good couldn't possibly be wrong, right? People sing songs like, if loving you is wrong, I don't want to be right. Doesn't that, doesn't that sound like the songs people sing in our day? If loving you is wrong, I don't want to, it sounds like a country song, doesn't it? If loving you is wrong. But what Paul is telling us here is that true love, real agape, is glued to good, to that which is good and right. That's agape. And I, what's sad in our day, what's sad in our, in our day is that under the pretense of love, everything from suicide bombing to sexual sin to aborting babies in the womb, all of these evils are condoned and stamped with the label love. And that's not love. That's not genuine love. Because love abhors what is evil and clings to what is good. Paul says something similar in 1 Corinthians 13. He says, love, agape, same word, does not rejoice in wrongdoing, but rejoices in the truth. 
Love does not rejoice in wrongdoing, but rejoices in the truth. And similarly, Paul says here in Romans 12, love and goodness, love and goodness are friends. They hang out together. They like each other. Love and evil, love and wickedness are enemies. Because genuine love abhors evil and is glued to what is good. And some people in our day might say this. You might even be saying this right now in your seat. Well, what is good, Pastor Tony? What is good? You know, I've got my perspective on good. You've got your perspective on good. You know, the world says this is good. I mean, the world said this was good a couple of years ago, but now it's bad. The world says this was bad a couple of years ago. Now it's good. It's, it's a moving target. Who am I to say what's right or wrong and what's good and what's evil? And, and I would say that's the right question. Who are we? Who are we to do that? We need an objective standard of what is good in this world, of what God wants, and that is found in the truth of his word. Look to this to determine what is good. And let your love be consistent with what this Bible deems good. Otherwise, it's not love. Everybody with me? Let your love be genuine. Abhor what is evil. Cling to what is good. Paul also says this. Look at verse 10. He says, love one another with brotherly affection. Philadelphia is the Greek word here for brotherly affection. Outdo one another in showing honor. I think this is instructive too because Paul's talking here about you know, this, this affection between brothers and sisters in Christ in the church, loving one another in this context. And there's some code words here that let me know that he's talking about the church primarily in verse 10. He uses two Greek words. The first Greek word is alelon, one another. Love one another. When, when you see that in the New Testament, that's a signal, that's a trigger. We're talking about the church, the one another in the church. Love one another. And then also, Paul uses this word, Philadelphia. Love, phila, philos, phileo, meaning love. Adelphos, meaning brother. Philadelphia means brotherly love or brotherly affection. Some of you know this from history, but when, you know, when William Penn set up his colony, Pennsylvania, he wanted it to be different from the other colonies that were always squabbling over denominational differences. And so when he set up his colony, Philadelphia, he, he put his capital in place and he said, this will be a city that demonstrates brotherly love above all else, above other doctrinal distinctions. And he named the capital of Pennsylvania, Philadelphia. This is it, brotherly love, that's our focus. It was to be this city of brotherly love a city where Romans 12, verse 10 was lived out in practice. You know, we, we hear people say all the time, I love Jesus, I just, I just don't like Christians. I, I love the Lord, but I can't stand the church. And one of the things that's, that Paul does here, and this is throughout the New Testament, is say, you can't have agape love for God if you don't have Philadelphia. You've got to have both of those, and both of those things work together. Those are outworkings of our salvation even, the love that we have for one another. Read 1 John for more on that. Says someone, John says that someone who's truly saved, someone who's f really full of the Holy Spirit, will inevitably love the one another's in the church. You can't love Jesus and hate the church. 
Paul says, love one another with brotherly affection and then outdo. Look at verse 10 with me. I love this. Outdo one another in showing honor. I'll tell you, when I get to church, sometimes, you know, I, I can't stop smiling when I'm here. I know you can't always see it behind my mask, but I, I, I love being at church. I love seeing y'all's faces. I really do. And, you know, the COVID thing is kind of frustrating because I want to shake everybody's hands. I want to give everybody a hug. I, I just love seeing you. I, I'm filled with this desire for brotherly affection. And I'm also filled, but, but you know, I've got this, I've got a sermon to preach, you know, like it's weighing on me. And I've got to go pray with the worship team, work through the order of service. And, and I've got to go do this and do that, make sure all that. I, really, some days on Sunday morning, I just, I just want to sit in here and just let's all talk and hang out. That'd be great. We've got small groups for that, which is good. But, but that's that brotherly affection, that kinship that we have one to another. And then there's the backside of verse 10. There's Romans 12:10a, but then there's also Romans 12:10b. Outdo one another in showing love. After you. No, 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 after you. No, 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 after you. Let me get that door for you. No, no, let me get that door for you. I heard once about in Japanese culture that one of the reasons they bow one to another is to show respect. And the most dishonorable thing that you could do is, as a lesser person, fail to show the proper respect to somebody who's superior than you. And so you, you just, just to be safe, you just bow and you bow and you bow, you know? No, after you, no, after you. Until finally you get so close you can't bow anymore and then you can open up and you can talk. You've outdone one another in showing respect to the other person. I think that's a great word picture, a, a great analogy of the way in which we should love each other and show respect for one another. We've already seen in Romans 12, Paul says, do not think of yourself more highly than you ought to think. Your instinctual response towards other people in the church should be humility, to think of others better than yourselves, to prioritize them above yourself, to compliment them. And one of the ways I think we can do this, let's just be super practical here, outdo one another in the showing of honor is honoring the gifts that other people have in the church that you don't have. Last week we talked about spiritual gifts. Some of you are teachers. Some of you are leaders. Some of you are servants. Some of you are exhorters. Some of you are helps people and hospitality people. And, one of the, and we need each other, right? We emphasized that last week. And one of the ways that we can outdo one another in showing honor is those of you who are gifted in leadership, go and affirm and lift up those who are gifted in service. We need that service gift that you have. Keep using that gift. Show honor to them as best you can and vice versa. And those of you who have the gift of exhortation, you can encourage and lift up and, and outdo in showing honor to those who are gifted in other ways. Outdo one another in the showing of honor. You know, quite frankly, even as I'm talking right now, there are so many ways to apply verse 10 in our lives as Christians, in our church. And you know, I can't do all the work for you. You know, like, 
Take this home and think this through. Take this to your small group and say, how can we outdo one another in the showing of honor? How can we have better brotherly affection in this COVID era where we can't hug? What can I do to show some affection for you? And work that out. And live that out. So number one, let love be the driving motivator in your life. Write this down as number two. Let zeal be the quality of your service for the Lord. Zeal. Paul says in verse 11, do not be slothful in zeal. Be fervent in spirit. Serve the Lord. Serve the Lord. Let, not, let zeal be the quality of your service for the Lord. Tell me if y'all have heard this before. I'm just gonna run something by you. Tell me if you've ever heard this before. Harvest Decatur exists to glorify God by making disciples who worship, walk, and work for Christ. Y'all ever heard that before? Have y'all heard that for maybe like the last 13 years here? Mature disciples who worship, walk, and work for Christ. One of our points of emphasis as a church is that every person in the church should be shouldering weekly kingdom responsibilities in the church. And Paul says here, serve the Lord. Work for Christ. And don't do it begrudgingly like, oh, hum, Pastor Tony, maybe go serve at the church. Do it with zeal. Do it with fervency. What is zeal, Pastor Tony? What is fervency? Zeal is passion. Zeal is, in a sense, fanaticism about your opportunity to serve the Lord. You get fired up for it. Like those crazy football fans get fired up when they go to Chicago Bears games. And they they put on face paint and they wear these jerseys and they have those foam fingers that say number one and they're fanatics. You be like that, except for the face paint. We don't need face paint. You go out there and be zealous about your opportunity to serve Christ. And if, you know, if people in your life say, well, I mean, that's great that you're a Christian, but do you have to be so, you know, gung-ho about it? You say, yes, I do. Yes, I do. Because I love Jesus. And because he's my one thing, and he's the most important thing in my life, and I get fired up about serving him and worshiping him and going to church and put some zeal in that. I think we have this problem in the Christian realm, especially where we compartmentalize. I do my church thing, and I go do some other thing, and I go do some other thing. It's just one of those things. Instead of stopping and thinking about how much God has blessed us, And when you stop and you think about that and you read verse 11, you say, do not be slothful in zeal, fervent in spirit, serve the Lord. You're like, yes, yes, I should be. Yes, I want to be. Help me, Lord, with that. Robert Mounts says this. You can read this on the screen. It says, the life-giving presence of the Holy Spirit radically alters the way a person lives. That spirit inside of you radically alters the way that a person lives. He says, a spirit-filled believer, by definition, cannot be dull and boring. God protect us from that. Ho-hum, going to church. 
fire us up, Lord, about serving you. A spirit-filled believer, by definition, cannot be dull and boring. That would be a contradiction in terms, says Mounds. And I know, let me be pastoral for a second, okay? Let me dial it down just a little bit. I know how you feel sometimes on Sunday mornings. You're like, Pastor Tony, zeal on Sunday. I'm just glad we got to church without a fight, you know, on the way over. I'm just glad we got the kids out of bed. I don't have any energy left for zeal just after I get here. And if that's how you feel, I, I hear you. I understand. And that's why I'm calling this message today the normal-ish Christian life, not the normal Christian life. This is something we're striving for. This is something we're moving towards. This is something that we want to grow in. I'll tell you what helps. I'll tell you what helps you get fired up for church on Sunday morning. And it's not just Sundays, you know. Tuesday night, Thursday nights, Wednesday nights, got small groups, small group leaders, you're stressed out, how am I going to lead this group, what am I going to do, and you know what helps with that? Prayer helps with that. To stop and to say, Lord, my heart's not in the right place right now, I'm easily distracted by things I shouldn't be distracted by, help me to focus on you, help me to love you. Fire up that spirit inside of me to be zealous and fervent for you. By the way, that word fervent in verse 11, fervent in spirit, that Greek word literally means to boil over. And I think that's a great word picture. Actually, the English word fervent comes from the Latin fervens, which also means boiling. And so I think we often think of boiling over as like, I'm so angry, I'm boiling over. That's, that's not the picture here. It's you're so zealous. You're so excited about the Lord. You just kind of boil over. And I, you know, I've prayed that from time to time. Boil me over, Lord. Give me that kind of fervency that just bubbles up and then spills onto other people. Boil me over, Lord. Give me that kind of zeal to serve you. Let zeal be the quality of my service for you, Lord. And notice also spirit in verse 11. Everybody sees spirit in verse 11. Be fervent in spirit. The ESV, if you have an ESV Bible, I know it says little as spirit. I think that should be a capital as spirit. I think Paul is circling back with those Holy Spirit gifts that he talked about previously. When he said in verse 6, having gifts that differ according to the grace given to us, let us use them. Prophecy, service, leadership, exhortation, teaching, Paul's now circling back with that, and he says, be fervent in the use of your gifts. Let, let that boil over inside of you, the work that the Holy Spirit's doing inside of you so that you can bless others. Don't be slothful in your use of spiritual gifts. Don't be lackadaisical with what the Holy Spirit has given you. Serve the Lord with that. And I'll tell you too, okay, after 35 plus years of following Jesus and 13 years of pastoral ministry, I wish I could tell you that zeal comes easy for me. Like, like I just got it. I wish, you know, and maybe it seems that way because I'm up here getting all fired up every Sunday, but I've been praying even this last week that the Lord would increase my fervency for him. I actually felt convicted about it last week. Because there was that, there's that statement in 
In Romans 12, 3 through 8, where Paul says, the one who leads with zeal. I'm a leader. I'm a pastor. I'm an elder. And even as, that's the same Greek word too, zeal. And even as I read that last week and preached it, I was convicted because I'm not, I don't have the same passion for leadership like I've had in the past. And I'm asking the Lord to fire that up inside of me again. God, give us zeal for service. Write this down as number three. We've got love. We've got zeal. Thirdly, we've got hope. Let hope be your solace in a world of pain and sorrow. Paul says in verse 12, Rejoice in hope. Be patient in tribulation. Be constant in prayer. Let's talk rejoicing in hope. What is our hope as Christians? What is our hope? This is really important because if you Let's just talk about how we serve in the church. If, if you put your hope in success, you may be disappointed. So what is our hope? Rejoice in hope. What is our hope? Here's our hope. Let me be crystal clear about this. Our hope is in the return of our Savior, Jesus Christ, that he is coming back again. And he's going to put an end to all of our pain and all of our sorrow and all of the difficulties and the tribulations that we go through in this life. That is our hope. That is what we fix our eyes on. That is what we concentrate on. That is what we rejoice in. Even when we don't have anything to rejoice in in this world, we rejoice in that. The hope that Christ gives us. That all of this pain and all of this tribulation, all of this sorrow will someday be a thing of the past and will be a distant recollection. That is our hope. That is how we have patience in tribulation. And Paul, by the way, Paul has talked about hope in the book of Romans. It's actually a pretty consistent theme in this book. Paul said in Romans 5, verse 2, you can read this on the screen. Through Christ, we have also obtained access by faith into the grace in which we stand. And we rejoice in hope of the glory of God. More than that, we rejoice in our sufferings. What? Knowing that suffering produces endurance and endurance produces character and character produces hope. And hope does not put us to shame because God's love has been poured out into our hearts through the Holy Spirit who has been given to us. Paul talks about hope in Romans chapter eight. For I consider that the sufferings of this present time are not worth comparing with the glory that is to be revealed to us. For the creation waits with eager longing for the revelation of the sons of God. For the creation was subjected to futility, not willingly, but because of him who subjected it in hope that the creation itself will be set free from its bondage to corruption and obtain the freedom of the glory of the children of God. Amen. Hallelujah. Come, Lord Jesus. For we know that the whole creation has been groaning together in the pains of childbirth until now, and not only the creation, 
But we ourselves who have the first fruits of the Spirit grown inwardly as we wait eagerly for adoption as sons, the redemption of our bodies. For in this hope we were saved. Now hope that is seen is not hope for who hopes for what he sees. But if we hope for what we do not see, we await for it with patience. This is our hope, Harvest Decatur. This is what we wait patiently for. This is what causes us to rejoice. This is what makes us patient in tribulation. This is what helps us to be constant in prayer. That Jesus Christ is coming back. And that Jesus is going to redeem these bodies of ours. And give us new bodies and new life. And that we're going to live forever with him. Free from from pain and sorrow and tribulation. Are you joyful about that? Is that your hope? If you can't rejoice in that, check your pulse. This is what we hope in. Are you alive? Do you believe this? And by the way, I've said this before, but hope, hope, what is biblical hope? Hope, biblically speaking, is rock solid. It's not hope, the Greek understanding of this word is not the same as I hope this happens I hope it doesn't rain today it's not like you know I hope the Bears win the Super Bowl I I could make a joke right now about how Illinois going to the final four is a hope but they actually have a pretty good chance of making it this year so that's not the best illustration but I'm just telling you right now to say I hope Illinois makes it to the final four is not the same as I hope Jesus is coming back it's not like, gee, I hope my kids go to college someday. Gee, I hope, you know, I hope this happens. I hope 2021 is better than 2020. When Paul uses the word hope, when he talks about hope, he's talking about God's promises that are a sure thing that are going to happen. If God promised it, it's going to happen. We put our hope in this, in that. It's confidence, respecting, fulfillment or expectation that God is going to bring about his his promises we can have great confidence in so here's a good gut check for you right now everybody listening everybody online listening right now what is your hope in right now what are you putting your hope in If you put your hope in politics, prepare to be disappointed. And I don't say that so we don't vote. I'm just telling you, when you do go vote, don't put your hope in that. You better have something better than that that you're putting your hope in. Don't put your hope in the U.S. economy or your 401K. Don't put your hope in your children that they will someday make your life meaningful and worth living. If your hope is found in anything other than what we have in Christ Jesus, it is misplaced. As Christians, we rejoice in the hope, in the confidence that Jesus Christ is coming back, and no matter how bad this life gets, no matter how bad this world gets, and by the way, it could get a lot worse than it is right now. And no matter what happens, God is preparing an eternal home for us that nothing will ever, ever take away from us. Death can't even take it away. Actually, death expedites our hope. 
And that's why Paul says, rejoice in hope, be patient in tribulation, be constant in prayer. If you, if you get that, if you have your hope anchored to Jesus Christ, you can endure anything. You can be patient in tribulation. You can persevere through anything. And some of you right now, even as I'm saying that, you, you, might, you might be saying to yourself, you might be saying to me, Pastor, I'm not there yet. I'm not there yet. I'm not rejoicing in that hope like I should be. I'm not patient in tribulation like I should be. I'm not constant in prayer like I should be. Okay. Me neither. Me neither. But let's get there. Let's get to that. Let's get to that goal. Let's live this out in our lives. You know, I... More pastoral confession time. I don't, I don't read verse 12 and say, nailed it. I got that. Pastor Tony, yeah, piece of cake. I don't do that. And, and I'll, I'll just tell you, this, this whole section here, there's nobody in the room right now who's reading this like, check, yep, got that, check, oh, yeah, got that. Man, this is a piece of cake. We're all struggling in this. This is a high ideal that Paul is calling us to. But that doesn't mean we quit. Let's get to this if we're not there yet. And here's one last thing that I'm striving for. You can write this down as number four. I want love to be the... the driving motivator in my life. I want zeal to be the quality of my service for the Lord. I want hope to be my solace in this world of pain and sorrow. And finally, I want grace to be the essence of how I treat others. So fourthly, let grace be the essence of how you treat others. Paul says in verse 13, Here's another outworking of the normal Christian life. He says, contribute to the needs of the saints and seek to show hospitality. Contribute to the needs of the saints and seek to show hospitality. Let grace be the essence of how you treat others. Now, there's something that Paul's doing here that involves believers and also unbelievers. So let me just explain this a little bit and then I'll finish up. Um, Paul says, first of all, contribute to the needs of saints. And then he says, show hospitality, which primarily, I'll show you in just a second, should be outside of the dynamic of the church, of the tribe of the church. Let's start with the first part of that because I think, I think this, there is a priority in this. Contribute to the needs of the saints. We talked last week about the gift of mercy, how some of you are gifted in mercy. We talked last week about the gift of giving also. That's in verse eight. And if if you have those gifts, you you should be all over this. You should read verse 13, contribute to the needs of saints and say, yes, Pastor, I'm in, I'm all in for that. But I want you to know that that's, that's not just limited to those people in the church who have that gift. If you have the gift of helps or if you have the gift of giving, all of us should have this mentality. If, if, if you see somebody in the church has a need and you can meet that need, meet that need. If it's an emotional need, if it's a physical need, if it's a psychological need, you meet that need. How can I help you? How can I bless you? How can I serve you, the saint? And by the way, let me, just a word on saints because you might say, what's a saint? Are we talking about like somebody who's dead, who's been canonized? 
No, that is not a saint, okay? A saint, in Paul's language here, is anybody and everybody who has been saved by the blood of Jesus. So if that's you in our church right now, you are a saint, okay? You are a saint. Please don't get that confused with dead people who are canonized. And so if you see a fellow saint, if you see a fellow believer, if you see somebody in the church that you can meet their need, meet that need. Bless them, love them in that way. And we should prioritize the needs of fellow saints above those outside of the church. Paul says elsewhere, let us do good to everyone, especially to those who are the household of faith. All right, so that's that side of it. But look what Paul says at the end of verse 13. This is fascinating to me. Paul says, and seek to show hospitality. What does that mean? Just a point of clarification here, that word hospitality, we don't have a great English word to translate that Greek word. But the Greek word here is philozenia. Philozenia. I mentioned Philadelphia earlier. Philadelphia is love for brothers. Philozenia is love for strangers. It's love for outsiders. Philozenia, if you've ever heard the term xenophobia, that's the fear of outsiders or the fear of people from a different culture, xenophobia. This is not xenophobia. This is philozenia, love for outsiders. And this has to do with people who aren't in your tribe, people who aren't in your sphere of influence, people you don't know well, strangers that you can bring into your house and love and care for. You know, Jesus even alludes to this Speaking of love, this is on the screen. Remember what Jesus said on the Sermon on the Mount? He says, if you love those who love you, what reward do you have? Do not even the tax collectors do the same? And if you greet only your brothers, what more are you doing than others? Do not even the Gentiles do that? Do not even the Gentiles do the same? In other words, Jesus is saying that If you love those who love you, don't congratulate yourself too much. That's Pavlov's dog. That's just ring a bell and you salivate. Somebody loves you, you love them back. This is going beyond that. This is showing love to strangers, to people you don't know well, welcoming them into your home and giving them hospitality. Here's a great definition for hospitality. Colin Cruz says, this is on the screen. He says, hospitality may be defined as the process by which an outsider's status is changed from stranger to guest. Welcome into my home, stranger. Now you're a guest. So what's Paul, what Paul is telling us here is bring a stranger into your home. And I know, I mean, it's COVID time right now, and someday it won't be. But this, this might take some creativity to figure out how to make this work and how to do this. God, give us that creativity to, to reach outside of the walls of our church and the dynamics of the one another here at Harvest Decatur and show love and meet a need. What is grace? Why did I use that word grace? Grace is unmerited favor. You do that not because people deserve that. You do that because God showed you grace. And you want to reciprocate that 
with another person. God showed you love. You want to love another person. Meet another person's need within the church. Show another person hospitality. And I think, too, you know, all respect to what Jesus said, I totally believe what Jesus said in that verse. But I think there can be a tendency as well for some of us to be kind towards strangers and then be really unkind to those people that we know best. You know, we, we look past a slight at work and then we come home and we punish our spouse. Or we, we forgive some stranger, some acquaintance for something they did to us, but then we go home and we, we lash out at our kids. We give them exactly what they deserve all the time. Never show them any grace. Let's not be those kinds of people. I want... I don't think I'm there yet, but I want people to look in on my life and say, that guy lives out grace in the way that he interacts with other people. God, protect us from always giving people exactly what they deserve. I don't want that. I don't want people treating me exactly the way I deserve. God has given me grace when I didn't deserve it. And I want to do that with others. Let grace be the essence of how you treat others. So review time. Here we go. Love, zeal, hope, grace. Those four items, those four values. If, if I was making a normal Christian life stew, those are the ingredients I would put in that stew. Love, zeal, hope, grace. Let's go after those things. And you, and you might, some of you this morning, you might be new to Harvest Decatur. You might, you might be hearing this for the first time, hearing Romans even for the first time. You think to yourself, oh, okay, this is pretty good. I like this. I can do this. Love, zeal, hope, grace. I'm in. I, I'm all about that. I, it's definitely better than what the world's giving me right now. I'm going to do it. I'm going to live for that. I'm going to do that. I'm going to live that out. Can I just tell you right now as we're finishing up, you can't do that. Not to discourage you. But you can't. See, here's the problem. We're in Romans 12, and we have this thing in our Bible. It's called Romans 1 through 11. And before you can get to 12, you got to know 1 through 11. And you might say, well, what's Romans 1 through 11, Pastor Tony? Well, I don't have time to go through all that right now. But let me summarize it in three statements. What Romans, because you've got to get Romans 1 through 11 down before you can get to Romans 12. And here's the essence of Romans 1 through 11. Everybody ready? I'm going to be really succinct. I know that's not one of my skills, but here we go. You are a sinner. Number one. Number two, you need a savior. And number three, Jesus Christ to say, came to save sinners. That's the essence of Romans 1 through 11. And until you get that down, you can't do Romans 12. Let me repeat those. This is the essence of the gospel too, by the way. You're a sinner. I'm a sinner. Number two, 
You need a Savior. Number three, Jesus Christ came to save sinners. Paul says very clearly in Romans 10, if you confess with your mouth that Jesus is Lord and believe in your heart that God raised him from the dead, you shall be saved. That's where the Christian life begins. And once you get that down, once you have saving faith, then you can start talking love, zeal, hope, grace, and all the other accoutrements that go with the Christian life. Let me say it this way. Don't put the cart before the horse. If you don't have the horse, you can't pull the cart. Romans 12 is the cart. And if you're here this morning and all of this sounds good and you want to live this out, but you don't have a saving relationship with Jesus Christ, if you don't have the Holy Spirit, if you don't have saving faith, if you haven't confessed your sins and received the free gift of salvation that Jesus gives through his death, through his resurrection, you can't live out Romans 12, 9 through 13. Can we pray right now? Let's just bow our heads. I feel strongly compelled to do this right now. I've been feeling this all week. Let's quiet our hearts before the Lord right now. One of my deepest fears as a pastor is to preach moralism to you. Do good, do right, be a good person. Let me just tell you this morning, you can't. You can't do that in your own power. And even if you could, you can't earn God's favor by being loving or being zealous or being gracious to other people. You need that transformative work that comes through repentance and faith. So if you're here this morning, if you're watching online, listen, hear me on this. You are a sinner. You need a Savior. And Jesus came to save sinners. And you can right now have your sins forgiven. not by doing stuff, not by living a good life, not even by obeying the principles of the Bible. Your sins are forgiven by faith in Christ, by receiving 
the righteousness that he gives that you couldn't produce yourself. And if you want that this morning, if you want that, then do as Paul says in Romans 10. Confess with your mouth that Jesus is Lord and believe in your heart that God raised him from the dead. Just right now, tell him, Lord, I'm a sinner. I have broken your laws. I can't save myself. I need you, Lord. And I believe what you did for me on the cross. I believe you died for my sin. I believe you rose from the dead. I confess you as the Lord of my life. I renounce my own lordship over my life and I give you lordship. Help me to be obedient to you, to live a life that's pleasing to you. Help me to be obedient to the Holy Spirit. Lord, thank you for salvation. Thank you for Jesus Christ. And thank you, Lord, that even as we are saved, you don't leave us. You stay with us. You grow us. You call us to these high principles. And Lord, I pray that you would help us as a church to live this out to live like this as followers of Jesus. And I pray that our lives would be so characterized by Romans 12, 9 through 13 that people start to take notice. And that people are attracted to that and want to know what it is that makes us different. God, do that in our church, we pray. Thank you, Lord, for your word. Help us to be doers, not just hearers. I pray in the name of Jesus. Amen.